Today we're in Act 5 of our six-part series through the entire story of the Bible that we're calling Long Story Short. How do you make sense of the world today? How do you make sense of the human race? I don't need to present a lot of evidence to you to show that we are capable of vile and hateful acts. But at the same time, we are capable of incredible beauty, great acts of kindness. How do you make sense of that? And if we're turning to the Word of God for answers, how do we make sense of the Word of God? Jump into one place of the Scripture and you see a woman being turned to salt for simply looking backwards. Jump into another place and you see a woman being restored by a loving Savior out of a life of adultery. Some places of Scripture appear to be cruel and unfair, and others represent some of the greatest statements about love and mercy and justice ever composed by human hands. How do you make sense of the world around you, and how do we make sense of Scripture in our hope to find those answers? Well, we really understand how the Scripture can guide us through this when we step back and view the whole Scripture through the one big story of which we are all a part. And we've been taking it one act at a time. Act one was creation. We saw that God created a world in perfect shalom, fullness, everything in its place, everything doing what it was meant to do. He created man to live in perfect relationship with him and intimacy with one another, to have a great job to do, a fulfilling, rewarding work, and fitful, joyful season of rest and worship and Sabbath. But act two, chaos. We rejected God's good rule over our lives, and as a result, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and instead of perfect peace and shalom, chaos rules our hearts, our society, and all of nature. How will God restore the mess that our rebellion caused. Act three, covenant. God promises. He promises by establishing a relationship with Abram. A people is born and a promise that through those people, all the world would be blessed. Eventually the promised land, falling back into sin, coming back to God, falling back into sin, finally losing that land out in exile, 70 years brought back. The history of the covenant people is a history of almost constant falling away from God. So why the covenant? Because the covenant is not about our faithfulness. In fact, the covenant in part proved our inability to do this on our own. So at the end of that period of history, we see Israel miraculously return to the land by God's doing, the reestablishment of the central act in the life of the covenant people, and that's the sacrifice, in particular the Passover lamb, as a foreshadow of the great act of redemption that would come. But as we head into four centuries of silence, Israel is not free even in their own land. They are under the might of Rome in the same way they were under the might of Egypt before the Exodus. They need a Savior. And then Act four, Christ, God saves. 
Christ took the punishment for sin and wrought through his death and resurrection a victory over the two great enemies that are the result of the chaos of our world, sin and death. Through Christ, both have been defeated. And now today, we come to the next act, which spans, to date, 2,000 years. Because this act is the one in which we are playing our role still today. And it's what we're calling the church. And in this act, God sends. Now, like all of the things we've talked about, there is so much to say about the church, but I'm gonna do my very best to help you understand how we fit into that big picture. Not so much as individuals, we're gonna get there over the next couple of weeks, but how we as a single entity known as the people of God. So we're gonna start in Matthew chapter 16. This may be a familiar passage to you. It's where Jesus says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say you're a prophet, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Then he turns to them and asks the pivotal question, the question toward which all of his interaction with them had moved. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we're going to pick up Jesus' reply beginning at verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So here we see the first use of the word church. The Greek word is ekklesia. It means a called out assembly. From a religious point of view, the called out people of God, called out from something to something, and not as individuals, but as a whole, the called out people of God. And Jesus is the one that said, I'm going to have this. I'm going to build my church, the new community that is under the authority of Jesus Christ. And then there's another really important thing he says here that speaks about the role that this new community is going to play in God's big picture. And it's that phrase, the gates of Hades, or hell, will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loose in heaven. When he says the gates of hell, he's not referring just to eternal damnation. He's referring to sin and death. I will give you the keys to the kingdom. The kingdom of God is wherever Christ reigns, right? We've done a lot of teaching on the kingdom of God and what it means to be the people of God, extending the reign of God, not just by transforming lives, but by transforming our city, by bringing about justice and mercy. And one of the things we've learned is that the term kingdom, Basileia, is not about a geographical region, but it's about the act of reigning. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about wherever Christ reigns. If Christ reigns in your heart, then that's where the kingdom of God is. Where we go, we bring the kingdom with us. And everything that's not part of the kingdom, you know what that is? It's Hades. 
It's under the authority of sin and death. And God intends for us to bring the life of the gospel, the life of the kingdom of God, into every dark place that is currently under the curse of sin and death. And he says, we have such authority that the gates, the barriers, the defenses, the spiritual systems that we fight against are powerless against us when we work together. It's a wonderful thought, but it's all rooted in this idea that our faith in Christ is not individualistic. It's corporate. You see, in America, we think very individual. What's in it for me? Who am I in Christ? What am I getting out of the sermon? What's the church doing for me? My faith, my personal Jesus. It's so personalized that we miss the fact that in Scripture, the church who we are is extremely corporate. You cannot be a fully formed follower of Jesus Christ if you don't understand that you're part of something much bigger than your own needs and your own stuff. Now, Jesus cares about those needs and stuff, and and we care about it. But we're all meant to care about something far bigger, that we're part of something bigger. We are on the move extending the kingdom of God. In the end of his ministry, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says this as part of what we call the Great Commission. Let's say it together. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples from all nations. I want to focus on the first phrase, which we tend not to focus on as much when we quote the Great Commission. In fact, If most of us were to quote this last section of the Gospel of Matthew, we would begin with, therefore, go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. But there's that old Bible study phrase, when you come to a therefore in the Bible, you need to look and see what it's there for. That's it. Everything we're supposed to do grows out of that first statement. Say that first sentence again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What is Jesus saying? What is Jesus declaring there? He's saying, I rule. He's declaring the presence of the kingdom of God. All authority where? In heaven and? Does that cover it? Yeah. And will be given to me? No. Has been given to me. So Jesus is saying what he promised at the beginning of his ministry, the kingdom of God is at hand. And when he read from the prophet Isaiah and declared liberty for the captive and justice for the oppressed and sight for the blind, when he declared all these things that were part of what the kingdom of God was to be, he's saying... Yeah, I did it. I reign. And because I now rule, your job is to go and extend that rule as my body on earth into the very gates of hell itself. You have authority over sin and death because I have won that authority and I am in you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Do you understand that? It's it's a powerful thought and it helps us think bigger than just a simple concept of chalking off as many conversions to our church as we can. Because the reign of Christ is not just about us being recreated, but it's about the restoration of all things. Colossians 1 
talks about this. There's a beautiful hymn in Colossians 1. We often refer to it as the incomparable Christ. And it's structured somewhat like a butterfly. There is a verse, and then there is a central theme, like the body of the butterfly, and then there's a Another verse. The central theme is this phrase. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the primary theme of the hymn in Colossians 1 is the centrality and supremacy of Christ. And then the first verse, the first wing, declares that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. Not first to be born, Firstborn positionally, the place of highest honor as the heir to God the Father. Christ is the head of all creation, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. So when it says God spoke and said, let there be, John says that was the Word, that was Christ. So Christ is the primary creative force. He's the firstborn of creation, but creation fell into chaos, yes? So God works a plan that Christ would come and fulfill his role of being the center point of all of history and of all things. The cross is the spine of history. The second verse of the poem says that Christ is not only firstborn over creation, He's the firstborn over the new creation because God was pleased in Christ to reconcile all things to himself. Here's here's the point I, I want you to see with that. In the first creation, there was a people. Their job was to care and be stewards of the earth. And we are to fill the earth. We were to fill the earth with the human race. That race failed. But now... Through redemption, there is a new people. There is a new society, and Christ is also the firstborn over that. That's what the church is. We're the new people of the new creation. Our job is to participate in God's great work of bringing all things under the feet of Christ, bringing the kingdom to the world around us. Now, Will we complete the job? Ah, that's next week. We find out how it actually gets finished next week, but what I can tell you is right now, that's our job, to extend the reign of Christ through the proclamation of the gospel, but also through the bringing of justice and mercy and rule as Christ proclaimed the kingdom would bring. And so if you take what the original charge was to the original race, fill the earth, be stewards of the earth, and rule over it beneficently. We are charged in some sense as the new humanity to that. We're to fill the earth. How do we do that? Make disciples of all nations. What does it mean to be stewards of the earth? To care for the earth the way the human race was always meant to care for the earth. To use it in a way that it reflects more of God's glory. It feels a little heavy philosophically, but I think it's important that we see the role of the church as the new humanity in the new creation, living under God's good reign and fulfilling what our purpose is. Let me just take you now just quickly to 1 Peter chapter 2. Here we see Peter, a Jewish man, 
using some very important metaphors to describe the church. You know, sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. And he uses several metaphors to describe us together as this new race, this new people. I'm going to begin reading at verse 4. And as I read, you just start checking off the different metaphors, all right? As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like Living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, in this teaching, were you a first century, especially a first century Jew, these would not just be interesting images. Every one of these things would be like an aha moment for you. Let me explain why. If we go back into the Old Testament, we will see these very phrases being used of the covenant people of Abraham. For instance, uh, look with me at Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Look in uh, Deuteronomy. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Do you see the significance of Peter now saying, we, this new society, are actually the fulfillment of what God began with Abraham. And now, because God said to Abraham, I'm gonna bless the whole world through you, this new society is not just circumcised, it's circumcised and uncircumcised. Male and females, it's Jew and Gentile, it's slave and free. It's the fulfillment of everything. It's called the church, the people of God. See, It's a spiritual house. God now dwells with us. It's a chosen people. We are God's special possession. We are a royal priesthood, which has two connotations. One, we're royalty, we're children of God, but we're serving and worshiping Him together, a priesthood. He says you're a Holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. If our job is to offer spiritual sacrifices as a kingdom of priests, what does that entail? Many of us would just presume that is what we did earlier today when we offered the praise of our lips to God. We were offering a sacrifice of praise. But actually, it's much bigger than that. I want to just read for you from Hebrews chapter 13. Pay attention to these two verses. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, and openly profess his name. So that's what we would typically think of as worship, right? Offering him a sacrifice of praise. And the writer of Hebrews says, yes, by all means do that. But then he goes on and says, and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So listen to this. The priesthood in the Old Testament served before the presence of God in the temple. 
but they also were those that met the needs of the poor, that distributed care, that made sure that widows and orphans were cared for. And so our job, our, our worship, is not just the moody moments where God has our focus, but when we see God in the orphan and in the pressed down and in the homeless, and when we reach out to them, we are giving God a sacrifice of praise. So sacrifices, being a kingdom of priests is, is the fruit of our lips and the fruit of our lives. Do you understand that? Recently on Facebook, when I click some of these little articles that pop up to chase them down and then the ads come up, there's this one talking about a conference where it says, come and worship God without any distraction. That's how we're going to worship God, by getting away from everything. And I started thinking about that. And you know, I love worship. It's been a big part of my life and ministry over the years. But I think that is a misdirected notion. It is not a distraction to worship to be caught with the needs, the brokenness of the world around us, the needs for people. It is, in fact, true worship to do that. We're a kingdom of priests. We're meant to both offer God praise from our lips, but offer it from our lives as we reach out and do good. Now, there's one final image of the church I want to talk about, and that's the image of us as a body. Whereas these ideas of the church come from the Old Testament, uniquely the apostles coined this idea of the church as a body. One of the passages is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading at verse 12. Just as a body Though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And then he goes on and says, one part can't say it's more important than another because God has perfectly fit every part in the body. In other words, the body is shalom, peace. Everybody gifted, fulfilling their unique role. That's the idea of the body of Christ. We're greater together than the sum of our parts. Now, I want to just personalize as we wrap up here. I want to offer some thoughts as to how this idea of the corporate church that we're a part of today, it's the big act that God is doing right now. He's sending us out to the world. I want to help you think of it in terms of how it impacts you personally. And so I want to offer four thoughts. First of all, the concept of the body of Christ means that you are never alone again. If you have committed your life to Christ, if you have been birthed into his body, if you are a child of God, you are a part of a family that will never abandon you. You don't have to be alone. In fact, you can't go through life alone. You need your body, but the beautiful thing is that this body is a place where grace abounds. One of the things I love about our original vision statement is the idea that we are seeing God build a community here that is a grace-saturated family of faith. If, in fact, there's nothing you could ever do 
that would make God love you more and nothing you could ever do that would make God love you less, that ought to be true here as well. You never have to go through anything alone. Second, you have a unique role in God's plan. God has shaped you. Your story has been God forming you and shaping you and gifting you to do something that only you can do. We welcome you to that role. We're we're incomplete without you. When Peter referred to the church as living stones, he's, he's referring to the old way they used to build. You know how they did that? Every stone was cut for its singularly designed space. Each piece fit together so tightly that no mortar was necessary. Those kind of buildings are still standing today because they were built with one perfectly and uniquely crafted stone at a time. That's the body of Christ. You have a unique role to play here. Third, you are an essential part of something bigger than all of us. Isn't that awesome to think that what God is doing right now is not just about you living your life successfully, you know, and spiritually winning friends and influencing people. There's something so much more epic. And then finally, together we continue Christ's mission of bringing justice and mercy to the world around us. God is right now recreating the world and he's doing it through us, his body, his hands and feet. And you are part of that great and most important task of all. Let's just end by going back to that verse in First Peter and saying it together. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's a beautiful picture. At one time, we were aliens and strangers. We were not a people. But by God's grace, in this new act, there is the called out people of God. By the grace of God, we have a role to play in God's big story. This is one of those days where I just scratched the surface. I'm going to think about all sorts of things I wish I had said. But I hope that you've been encouraged and gotten some focus as to what your life should be about right now. You're part of something really wonderful that God's doing. And I'm so thrilled we're committed to that here. Let's pray together.